So I've heard it said, and this is, you know, the royal they, right? They say, never meet your heroes. But Sarah, I am personally so glad we got to meet two of mine as they gave us the shot of hope at the end of our conversation that we all need, I think, considering everything that's happening around us currently. As I mentioned during our conversation, the cases that Doug Jones was handling, which were directly related to the one that Bill Baxley prosecuted before, took place right when I was entering law school and directly impacted how I viewed justice, our legal system, and all of our rules in that going forward. I love that that had that impact because I actually didn't know that when we were setting up the conversations. And I've been looking forward to this conversation with the two of them ever since David Louie, who is a former attorney general of Hawaii, who we spoke to in episode 212, if you want to go back and listen. Um, David Louie made this introduction for us. It was incredibly amazing. And it was such a powerful conversation, not only because these two individuals are legal powerhouses, but also because they were just two men doing what they believed to be right, because maybe they were the only ones who could have fought this fight. And that, the power of one person standing in your beliefs and speaking up for those who cannot, is something that we should all carry with us from this conversation. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that models and normalizes conversations about race and racism so that we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Well, very excited to have you both. Would you please introduce yourselves for our listeners? I'm Bill Baxley, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And Doug Jones, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and part-time in Washington, D.C. these days. All right. So I'm just going to put this out there because we are an LSU family over here. So we're more of a- All right. We're, I think our work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to issue that disclaimer because we're more of a Go Tigers than Roll Tide family. So I feel like we can still be friends though. Okay. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, this was reading your book and prepping for this conversation, it made me reflect because I also started law school at Columbia in August of 2001, which was right between the Blanton and Cherry cases and verdicts. And I remember reading about those cases as a 1L and those in a way shaped how I viewed justice in the legal system as I moved through law school. So I'm personally like very, very excited that we're speaking today. You know, and I wanted to start off with a question for Doug, because, and this is coming sort of straight from the book, because in the book, you talk about being born right at the time of Brown versus Board of Education and growing up as a white Southerner in a time that shaped some of our civil rights going forward. And this quote that you had really stood out to me, which is knowing all that I know now I'm almost embarrassed to say that the scariest thing in my protected little world in the spring and summer of 1963 was the thought that the Yankees wouldn't go back to the World Series. <laughs> African-American kids, on the other hand, had long had boogeymen to worry about. And that quote stood out to me, not only because of our own family's experiences, but I think that some of our listeners may be able to relate to that statement, you know, even in 2023. And so, you know, taking you back to that time period, when did those racial differences sink in for you and how did they shape you going forward? Well, it probably didn't really start to sink in until I hit junior high school. 
you know, when I was uh, in the seventh grade, I guess. You know, in those days, we were living in, in that protected little bubble. There were social media. There was only three TV stations. And you saw the news for 30 minutes to an hour a day. And that was very clipped news. And so it was really protected. And there was, it, we didn't go into areas like downtown as much where I lived out in Fairfield. And so junior high was the first time that I went to school with black children, other black kids. And it was at that point that you had to kind of come to grips and understand what was going on in the world around you because it had not been that way. And quite frankly, I think the kids, although my friends, I think we did a much better job dealing with that, 1966, 67, uh, than our parents did dealing with that. And that was, I think, a testament to kids who were just there to learn and to have fun and to do sports and band and all the things that kids do. But that's where it really started for me. It started to gel a little bit that the world is changing. My world individually is changing, but also in a bigger sense, the world around me, especially in the South, is changing and changing dramatically. I guess a similar question for you, Bill, you know, when you know, Doug, you were just talking about how that shifted for you in your junior high. Bill, you grew up a little bit, a slightly different time. You know, how did you grow up with this firm belief in equity? Well, people have asked me that before, and they, I think, hope that I will say something like uh, this flash of light happened like St. Paul on the road to Damascus, and or some event occurred that uh, made me see the world. <laughs> That'd be a good story, but it wouldn't be true. Uh, from the first that I remember, I felt like it was wrong what I saw every day. I mean, I'm talking about a four or five, six-year-old kid. Uh, we got went to the Methodist church. My mother would push us in there every time the doors were open, and uh, you'd see, you, you know, they'd hand out little lesson plans of Jesus telling a story to little children of all colors around him sitting on, in the grass, you know, and then you'd go out on the streets of my hometown, Dothan, which was, uh, relatively speaking, a very tolerant place compared to Birmingham, Montgomery, uh, some of the other places, Mississippi. Uh, and you'd see on the streets of Dothan, it, it, it wasn't the, the way that they were teaching you in church. And I would ask my parents from the time I would, could talk practically, why, why, why? And they never gave me a good answer. And then as I got older, I learned they were good people. They, they taught us to uh, treat people fairly, but uh, they couldn't give us an answer because there was no answer to that question. Uh, there's no reason to treat people badly because of the color of their skin. Uh, it never has been a reason. It's legitimate. So I always felt that way. My dad, as I got older and uh, uh, Brown versus Board, and it became, you know, on the news after we got TVs, uh, my dad would, as I was on up in junior high and High school, my dad would say, son, I'm glad you feel like this, but you need to watch what you're saying. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it, and you're just going to ruin yourself. He said that over and over, and he and my mom were good people and taught me and my brother to treat people fairly, but uh, he was worried that I'd be too outspoken and it would be, you know, bad for my future in the South. Thank you for sharing. I, my grandparents are from Tennessee and Mississippi on the non-Japanese side and, and have very similar stories of growing up in the South in a place where you weren't supposed to say certain things if you wanted to have sort of a smooth path in the South. And I think that's why they ended up leaving the South for 
that and some other reasons. So I appreciate you both sort of setting the context of where you are coming from. And, you know, back when we started this podcast, one of the first episodes we did was actually about the 16th Street bombing. And in that prep for that episode, we had the four girls' faces in our episode prep so that we knew that this was not that we knew, but this was a reminder that this is a human story. And these are girls who lost their lives to a terrorist act. And Doug, in the book, the way you tell the story of the bombing itself almost read to me like that opening statement at trial in some ways, like it humanized the victims, it highlighted sort of all of the terrible crap, for lack of a better word, that went into this act of terrorism and addressed the aftermath of this horrible act. So, you know, what stood out to you as you were writing that and retelling this story, not only for the book, but I know you both did this in front of juries, right? And in front of juries, you're telling that story, you're humanizing the victims, you're looking for this resolution. So what key points did you feel like you needed to get across for both of you, really? You know, for me, we always, from the very beginning, from the time that our investigation became public. We wanted to give the portrayal of this not as a history lesson, not as something that is a historic trial, but it was a human tragedy. It was a homicide that had gone unsolved, except for Bill's case, the one case in 1977. It had gone essentially unsolved. There were people out there that had committed this horrendous act, and these families, these girls, these human beings. Uh, demanded a sense of justice. They demanded the same thing that you would want if that had occurred yesterday and the effort to go into it without regard to the color of their skin, without regard to the overall effect that it had on the Alabama or the country. We believe because it, it went, at some level as a trial lawyer for us, I assume Bill was probably the same way, you really weren't sure exactly who was going to be sitting in on that jury. And you wanted to try to get a juror that was going to give you a fair shake. But in, a, in the case that you have someone on that jury that might just be a little bit more prejudiced than you want, you've got to make sure that this is a crime. This was a human, this was murder. And we wanted to do it that way. And I think all along from uh, day one, our public pronouncements, everything else was that they deserve justice. They deserve to be, these girls deserve to have their killers convicted and incarcerated. It was essentially Bill's argument that he made, I think, in the closing, in his closing argument. And we try to do that as, as much as we can, because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It is about these families. It is about the girls and the lost opportunities for their lives. Uh, and in that sense, everyone lost when those four girls died. And it wasn't just the civil rights aspect of it. We lose a lot when we lose children. And I think we were able to demonstrate that in a very human and compelling way. And that's exactly what we wanted to do. And it's exactly as we talked to some of the jurors afterwards, I think really let them put any kind of biases and prejudices aside and judge the cases fairly. Bill, anything to add to that? Well, I think the fact that it occurred in a house of worship in a church. It was another factor that uh, I think both of us stressed. Um, we're in the Bible Belt, and uh, uh, to say that this is uh, simply a murder case, but it's the worst kind of murder case you can have because it's four precious, innocent little children. 
and their lives were taken when they were in a house of worship, engaging in worship. And I think making that argument, for instance, our, I think our jury was 10 whites and two blacks. Could have been nine, three, but I think it was 10, two. I think Doug's was a little more even, but uh, we tried to just make it uh, that this is prosecuting a murder case. Uh, this is not prosecuting a civil rights uh, uh, sit-in. This is a cold-blooded, calculated murder of innocent children in a house of worship. Bill makes a really good point about this being in a church. But one of my colleagues that was on my team, Jeff Wallace, was an assistant district attorney, and he was the son of a Methodist minister. And he made the point early on that this do not underestimate the power of the fact that this happened in a church. And we literally use the church as a victim. We kind of humanize the church itself as a victim in this. And I think it was really effective. So Bill's absolutely right about that part. Hearing that even now, I appreciate that so much because in this era, I feel like we have seen so much tragedy now with television and movies. I'm so sort of detached from the news that we hear because there's so much constantly with these negative headlines and for you to really weigh in and humanize that and hear you talk about their murder in such clear terms is so important, I think, for all of us to hear. But one thing I would love to ask you both, you know, from Bill, from the time that you started with the prosecution of the first bomber who was tried, the road to get there was so, like, difficult. I feel like there was tons of pushback between the FBI not giving the information that you wanted them to fully reveal to you, the Klan, Governor Wallace with the segregation, then segregation, now segregation forever, you know, that sort of pushback. There were people determined to make the process of achieving justice as difficult as possible for you both. How do you find that inner drive to keep going from that? I know, Bill, you talked about it being the right thing to do, but that's a lot of resistance to push through. I never thought of it like that. I just thought that it was, uh, I was in a position that I felt like I was maybe the only person in the world that had an opportunity to do that because the Attorney General of Alabama is pretty powerful with the as far as power for prosecution goes compared to the other states, uh, he or she, we hadn't had a she yet, but uh, they can take over any criminal case, instigate any criminal case anywhere, step in for any DA anywhere. Uh, so when I, after I got elected attorney general, I had, uh, I was in college when the bomb went off. And that day I, I lost my appetite. It came across that, uh, had been a bombing in a church and some injuries and then some deaths and it happened to be four little children and others injured. And so that night I made a vow to myself that I wanted to do something about it. And uh, you got to understand what I envisioned that I could be able to do, what I was thinking about when I made that little promise to myself. I thought that maybe the feds would make a case. And if they did, I was going to volunteer to come up and, drop out of school if I had to and run errands, uh, bring coats and books and tote briefcases and bring hot dogs and cigarettes, whatever they wanted to. That's, that's what I envisioned being able to do. And so after I got elected attorney general, just a little over six years later after the bomb happened, uh, they had issued us some little cards and badge, a badge and a commission and things like that the day before we got sworn in. And I was looking at that little card. It was, uh, this was before the day of 800 numbers and had uh, little numbers of uh, telephone numbers of all the major cities, but 
12 top cities in Alabama and uh, that had numbers when you were in those cities you could call and it would ring at the state switchboard in Montgomery. And then you could tell them to ring your office or ring the governor's office or the agriculture office. Or you could tell them to dial a number. And and if you were in Huntsville, you could call and say, dial a number for me in Mobile. They could do it, hook you up. So I knew I'd be using that card frequently. And so I was sitting looking at my commission, my badge, and it popped in my head what I had uh, kind of vowed to myself I could do. And I said to myself, uh, you're getting ready to be in the only position where maybe you can do something that's going to be a lot better than uh, toting cokes and briefcases and law books. And so I took that card, and in the corner of each card, I wrote one of those little girls' names. And I said, every time I use it, I knew I'd be using it often. I wanted to remind me of uh, the one promise that uh, I made a long time ago to myself um, to do something about it, and now I really can. So I never thought anything about the, uh, the question you asked. I just moved ahead, had good people, great people working with me. We had good cooperation from uh, state troopers. Uh, in fact, George Wallace uh, told me repeatedly how he hoped we could solve the case, and he let us use the state plane to travel all over the country. Doug, anything to add for that? You know, for me, it was a lot different. I had sat in on Bill's case as a law student, and it was I was nine when the bomb blew up, so it was not something unlike Bill that had always been with me, uh, not until really uh, as much I learned about it in the history books, but it was not celebrated uh, like it is now, the, the bombing. It was not memorialized like it is now. And it was Bill's trial that I sat in on as a second year law student that really brought it all home uh, to me. But even with that in 1977, I never dreamed that 24 years later, I would have an opportunity to, to finish that job. I say finish it. I don't know if you can ever call that finishing, but to at least follow that with two other cases, one of which was in the same courtroom. And we never got any pushback. I mean, we had some talk radio that were, you know, just complaining a little bit about why we were going back in and looking at these cases. But the community was very supportive. The community was there with us. In fact, the only thing that we were concerned about in this kind of came to light between the two cases was we were concerned that, you know, that if we couldn't make a case, there would be some blowback, uh, that that people got their hopes up too much. We tried to, to manage expectations a lot to try to make sure people understood this was an old case and that the evidence was difficult to pull together. Then after we got the first verdict with Tommy Blanton and there when there were issues with Cherry's competency and it delayed a little bit. You know, the community was pretty upset that they thought Cherry would get away with it. We had been successful on one. So we had a difficult time, I think, more managing expectations to make sure people understood how difficult these cases were to bring to trial 37 and 38 years after the fact. There had been other successes, but we never got pushback. I never got threats like, like Bill had gotten some. We never got pushback from don't do this. It was just be careful. If you're going to do this, make sure you've got enough evidence to where you think you can at least give the, if you don't get a conviction, you've at least been able to put forth the best effort to show that. And so we had the support of the FBI. We had the support of the Department of Justice. We had the support 
of the local district attorney and our Alabama attorney general. So we we never got any kind of pushback on how to use evidence, where to use it, or at least nothing to think to, to speak about. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I was presidentially appointed and confirmed United States attorney. And if the FBI uh, wanted to do these cases, which they said they were doing, they were going to do it my way. And they got it. They understood it. And they opened up files that they never dreamed they would open up. And we did it and did it the right way. Can, can I say something now? Would it be button in? Uh... Please jump in. This is my favorite part of mine and Doug's little story. The biggest regret that I had in my public life was that I went out of office shortly after we convicted Chambliss, and I wasn't able to finish. Other people that did it, we knew who they were. We knew they were out walking around, but uh, we didn't indict any of them because we didn't have a strong case against them as we did Chambliss. So I went out of office knowing that other killers were still walking around free. I hoped that people would follow. I left all the files except my threat letters uh, in the office, hoping they would continue to work on the case. And that didn't happen. I reckon the people that came after me uh, thought it was unpopular, which I suppose it was with some people. And it was a big regret for me. And and I won't say I uh, lost weight or anything like that, but I... It bothered me for 25 years, and I would have—I wish that I had realized uh, during all that intervening time when nobody was looking at it, and nobody doing anything, and these people still walking around every day. Uh, one of them had died, uh, but the other two were still out. And I wish I had known that there was a kid sitting up in that balcony going to law school watching that case, and that almost 25 years later he'd be the U.S. attorney. And he would pick it back up and finish what I couldn't finish. And so Doug Jones will always be one of my heroes because he uh, came in and nobody had done anything for over 20 years. And Doug picked up the mantle and and, uh, picked up the football and scored a touchdown, two of them. And I have to admit that that's probably one of my favorite parts of this story that we do too. I love that because that was one of my favorite parts too. When you're, you know, Doug, you're looking at the balcony when you're in that same courtroom where you were sitting for Bill's trial. I think that there is something that's so amazing about that and that you both were able to bring the three Klansmen who had committed the bombings to justice. I have two boys, one's 10 and one's eight. I was telling my 10 year old that we were going to have this conversation today and he's learned about the bombings in his school. And so he was asking, wasn't that hard, though, because, you know, they happened so much. The trials happened so much later. Like, who tells the story who were and, you know, and that was one of the things that really stood out to me in the book is when you're talking about the witnesses. Right. And the key witnesses in all three of those trials and who they were. They were the spouses. They were significant others. They were the children or other relatives of the original Klansmen. And it's something that Sarah and I have talked a lot about on the podcast, like sort of the concept of Jane Crow and white women being some of the biggest supporters of white supremacy and also the ones who are going to testify against, you know, their significant others, the people who were so terrible to them along the way that they were, they've they been trying to get these men out of their lives. So can you talk a little bit about the role of these witnesses throughout those trials? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because, you know, we had a couple of folks that came through for us. Uh, we had an ex-wife of Bobby Frank Cherry. We had a former girlfriend of uh, Tommy Blanton. 
and they came through. We had an informant, Mitchell Burns, who uh, befriended Balanton, and they would ride around for a couple of years, and they would talk about the bombings and talk about the FBI. And, you know, Mitch was an informant, so a lot of those were recorded, and we used some of that in the evidence. He was a great witness uh, for, for us, who really was a Klansman, who lived really lived and died a, a Klansman, but always ultimately would do the right thing when it came to this case and these murders. We had a number of folks like that. But, you know, we also ran into a lot of brick walls with a lot of the um, the clan wives. There were a number of them that were still alive when we were uh, doing these. They were and some of their spouses, their husbands were alive at the time. And we tried a lot of ways to get the spouses to try to give us some you know, some bit of information that could help us put these the pieces of the puzzle to get uh, together. And in some cases, we got met with the basic, I don't remember, I don't know, which I think was a lot of ways of just not dealing with the situation. And then we got some pretty strong resistance from a couple of them who still felt that the way that they did. There was one uh, woman named Mary Frances Cunningham. Mary Frances was the sister of T. Chambliss. And Robert Chambliss's uh, wife, and we talked to her a lot, and she provided some interesting information for us, but not anything that we could really pull together and use that we felt comfortable with. We talked to another clan's wife. She was married to two different uh, clansmen. I thought I was on the verge of getting her to cooperate or getting through to her family to cooperate with us, and I'm convinced that she knew a lot probably more than any of the other wives. I'm absolutely convinced that she not only knew what was going on, she might have been at least had some role in helping cover it up, but she died in the middle of our investigation. So we were racing against time uh, as well. But all of these witnesses for my trial that was so long ago, you literally had to piece together a story about the civil rights movement, about the church, about the kids that marched, about the families and how they all interacted together. And ultimately, we had Bobby Frank Cherry, who had made admissions over the years to various family members and others. And that, re- and you coupled that with a, a long statement he had given on two different occasions, one to Bill's investigators, one to mine, and one in, the, in 1963, that were able to corroborate enough to get him and then in the Tommy Blanton case, it was an old tape recording that really put the nail in the case for us. The uh, recording that had been sitting in the FBI vaults for many, many, many years, it had not been uh, listened to. The FBI never believed it could be entered into evidence, but we were able to show how the law had changed and we got it into evidence in which Blanton admits being part of the group that planned the bomb at the place called the the Cahaba River, and then at the Modern Science Shop. And that was really a critical, critical piece uh, for us. It, every, I, I tell this a lot, trials are like puzzles. And sometimes you got puzzles that are bigger pieces and some that are just little ones, but they all have to fit just right together so that as they come, you don't have to have every piece of the puzzle to see the picture that it is beyond a reasonable doubt. You just got to have enough. And fortunately, we were able to get enough of those pieces of that puzzle that this jury could twice clearly see that these guys were guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
the tape recording part really stood out to me as, you know, I feel like that was sort of this made for TV moment where, you know, you've got this recording that's been in this box that no one's listened to. And suddenly this is the recording where you get him to on tape, you know, admitting to how he was involved. So I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. And it did one other thing. It not only was the admissions, but he was having a conversation with his then wife, who had been his girlfriend the weekend of the bombing. And they had gotten their stories together. And she was his alibi witness for the weekend and had been his alibi witness for, you know, 35, 40 years, close to it anyway. And she didn't budge, even though they had got divorced, they got married again. I mean, you can track their marriages and divorces with the investigations, by the way, because of the marital privilege. But she stood by him the whole time. And what that tape recording also showed was that she had lied to the FBI about where they had been that night. And that kept her. She was still alive at the time. And that kept her off the stand. She never admitted anything to me, but it kept her off the witness stand. Uh, because she admitted on that tape recording she had lied to the FBI. So it was a, had a dual purpose. But again, it was another clan wife who just wouldn't budge, who just refused to cooperate and didn't have that epiphany that we had hoped. Uh, well, Doug mentioned uh, about Tommy Bland's wife, and she was uh, terrible back. Uh, she wouldn't give us the time of day, and she stuck with him like Doug, Doug said, uh, from time to time that uh, I don't know if you, you guys have ever remembered Tanner Wynette in one of her famous country and Western songs, Stand By Your Man. Doug claims that was written for Brandon's wife because she stood by him for decades. But Samuels is why she sent us information and, and I think sent the FBI information back when it happened. Mayor Frances Cunningham was the sister of Chambliss's wife. And she was very helpful to us and uh, very helpful in getting Chambliss's niece to be a witness against Chambliss. She was one of our two best witnesses. And uh, I think that Mayor Francis just got a little senile maybe by the time Doug's came around because uh, she was very helpful, one of our most helpful uh, cooperators. I think you'll find that most of those Klansmen were not only racist, but they were bullies and a lot of them beat their wives, and uh, they were just horrible people. So I think a good many of the clan wives, some of them were tough as nails and prejudiced, but some of them, uh, quite a few of them, were very helpful to the law enforcement. That's good to know. I mean, it's interesting to hear the, as with any situation, you know, there are certain people who are very helpful, certain people who don't want to be helpful, but that there is a role for, even if you're not engaging in harmful acts yourself. There is a role as a bystander. There's a role as a family member that we all can make a difference, whether it's, you know, intervening inside the home or, you know, using the opportunity to use our voice and helping in a major case, case like this. A question I have for both of you is, as we were talking, it occurs to me that we're talking about the span of 60 years here. And some people at this point, and, and Doug, even at the end of your book, you said that there was a, a security guard who said, this is a long time ago. We shouldn't hold these older men accountable. There are a lot of people who say slavery was so long ago. There are people who say these instances occurred so long ago. This happened in the past. You know, we, we shouldn't be worried about discrimination anymore. 
what do you say to these people now? What you know, would you say to our listeners who might feel the same way? On the one hand, I, you know, look, I'd love to say we shouldn't worry about discrimination anymore, because if we didn't have to worry about it, it means it's not existing. But the fact is, it exists in a big, big way. And in many ways, it exists in more so than it did in the 1950s and 60s or earlier, because there is so much more discrimination. There are groups, more to groups that are being discriminated against so openly now, whether it is a religious discrimination, whether it is sexual orientation uh, discrimination, there is so much at stake here. And, you know, look, or have flaws in our history, but that doesn't mean that we, if we just simply say that that's in the past, it means we're not learning anything from those histories. We always celebrate the good things But we should also learn from the things that have caused us pain in the past. And so much of what we have done in this country has caused tremendous suffering, some tremendous pain. And it is issues of slavery, but it's also uh, issues, you know, incarcerating Japanese Americans uh, in World War II. That wasn't centuries ago. That was, uh, you know, just about 70 years ago, 80 years ago, thereabouts. So from what I say, when people start looking only forward and not trying to look backward, we got problems because people aren't listening. They're not paying attention. And if you only look and see what's going on in this country now, we are backsliding on Voting Rights Act. We're backsliding on equal opportunities for all people. We have got now in in the state of Florida, you know, you can't even teach diversity. We're banning books. Those are things that are happening around this country. And I think people have to understand. And for a lot of folks, this is hard to understand. It is hard to grasp. But our country was always destined to be a multicultural, multiracial uh, country. It was always going to be that way. And right now, we are more diverse than we've ever been. And it is going to continue. And for this country to continue to exist and be strong, we've got to celebrate everyone. And we celebrate the diversity. We celebrate the cultures. We celebrate everyone uh, equally. And if we don't look at what we are ourselves, it's really easy to not look at our flaws. You know, nobody likes to examine your flaws, but you got to do it in order to be better. And our democracy and the American idea is always going to be a work in progress because we're all we're human and we're going to have flaws and we got to continually work at it. Well, I can't remember. I was trying to remember who said it, but uh, the quote is something like, those who are ignorant of the past are doomed to repeat it. Who was that? Doug, you remember? I don't know. I think I heard it was Jefferson, but I'm not sure. Maybe it was Bill Baxter. I think it might have been Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I have always been an optimist, but I am gradually not being as optimistic as I was for most of my years, the last four or five years. Uh, back in the time that uh, when I was growing up and we had the segregation, I still was very optimistic because I felt like the majority of the people in the country were going to do the right thing. The majority of the people in both political parties were going to do the right thing. The last few years, I've lost my some of my optimism because I don't see that... Uh, we're moving in the right direction. In the old, back when we were coming along with all the things that were wrong, I still felt like the goals that we set set nationally 
were the right goals. And we were, as a society, by and large, we're moving towards the right direction. And now I worry whether we're, we're going the right direction. Oh, so I have this next question that I wanted to ask, especially both of you, because as the sole lawyer on the show, I often get sort of the pessimistic lawyer justice angle directed at me. So I was super excited to ask two other attorneys this question in front of Sarah, because it's related to a conversation that Sarah and I had not long ago. And now, Bill, with your answer, I'm not so sure I want to ask this question. But, you know, we were talking about our episode arc for this spring. And we have one last episode that we were talking about covering, covered some of the SCOTUS cases in a couple earlier episodes. We're going to cover some more of the docket and maybe the current news at the Supreme Court regarding ethics issues. And Sarah's response to that was that it felt hopeless and she personally feels helpless or resigned as to the trajectory, right, of where we're going. And it's not just at the Supreme Court level, you know, Doug, as you were saying, this is in the governor's offices in Florida. This is at state courts. This is federal courts. And I have always been the person that says, you know, that that believes that we are in this arc, right, towards justice. It may not be linear, but we but we do move in that arc. So I'm asking on Sarah's behalf, what sort of reassurance, if any, can you offer to especially the non-lawyers, but also the lawyers who may be feeling more pessimistic or jaded these days? about where we're heading, about the future of our legal system and justice in this country, if any. Yeah, Bill, you want to give that a stab first? Well, I think the only thing you can say is uh, keep plugging along. The only hope we've got is that the court system will provide equal justice for all. Uh, it's never done it 100% of the time for 100% of the people. But we've moved generally in the right direction, and we just can't give up trying to push to make sure that we keep struggling to do just that. And it is a struggle, but uh, we can't give up on it and wring our hands. And even though I'm uh, more pessimistic than I used to be, I still feel like we got to step up to the plate when we can and hope for a little bit of progress uh, a lot of the time. Yeah, I, you know, to follow that up a little bit, I think. Folks often forget how bad it's been in this country in the past. We didn't always live through it ourselves, the people that are alive today. We've lived through some of it. But I mean, you know, we had to fight for our freedom from England. We had a civil war that completely tore this country literally in two. And hundreds of thousands of lives were lost over an immoral issue of slavery. We've lived through Jim Crow. We've survived two world wars. We've survived the nuclear age so far. Uh, we've survived the civil rights movement. You know, people forget that women didn't even have the right to vote in this country until about 100 years ago. Black folks didn't really have the right to vote in this country until about 60 years ago. So we're still a young nation and we've gone through a hell of a lot. And I will tell you what gives me hope right now are that what I'm seeing in the young people in this country are reacting to the same things that give me a lot of pause and what Bill is talking about, the, the things that, that cause me to be pessimistic, that cause Bill to be pessimistic, are the things that are galvanizing support among young people. If you remember back, you know, we had a very active youth in the 60s and 70s 
that were taking to the streets, that were protesting. Some got out of hand. Okay, but it it made a difference in the establishment. It made a difference in in this country. Uh, And then all of a sudden, folks just I think the people that were coming up decided, well, you know, I need to I need to have a job. I need to have a family. I need to buy my next BMW. I need to, to look beyond the issues of society. I think that's changing a lot now. And I think that when the Supreme Court rolls back women's reproductive rights and rolls back voting rights and rolls back this right and that right, and there's concern that they're going to roll back LGBTQ rights. I think these young people who grew up in a different age with black friends and friends of different races, who grew up with friends of a different sexual orientation, they look at things differently. And they're seeing that what they're seeing, they don't like it. We saw that recently in the Wisconsin elections, I think, for the Supreme Court, where the young people made a difference in in that race. So what gives me hope is that there are enough young people that believe like Bill Baxley and I <laughs> that this is an America for everyone uh, and they're going to fight for it uh, and they're going to get engaged. They're going to be involved at the ballot box and they're going to step up and run for public office and be true public servants. So that's the reassurance. Make no mistake. We got some choppy waters ahead of us still. There is no question about that. I am not going to give up on this country. I'm not going to give up on the youth of this country uh, and others to make sure that we stay the course and that we continue to be what I believe the greatest country that God's put on the earth. Okay. So I got a little bit of hope from that. Thank you. I appreciate it. But you mentioned, you know, that young people have grown up in a different era and that they're using their voice. You mentioned during that there were, you know, in the seventies, there was our bodies, people were using our bodies and showing up at protests, but What for you sitting in D.C. is the most powerful way for young people or people who have strong opinions that want to use their voice so that they are heard and listened to? Like, What can people, the everyday person hearing this right now, do to make sure those in D.C. are actually listening? First of all, I think they got to get engaged in their local communities. We've got to get back more to civic engagement at the local level. Gary Hart, former Senator Gary Hart, just wrote, wrote a wonderful little book about this and, and about how we can save this democracy by getting back to the basics and civil engagement, civic engagement, but also civil engagement, not going to board of education meetings and screaming and hollering and threatening people, but engaging with what they do. They go to the city councils, the county commissions, and 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 that will, will bubble up. But voter, folks have to get involved in issues that they care about and stand up for these things and speak out a little bit. And then they've got to organize and and get out and vote. Right now in this country, we still, even with what last time was record turnout, it's still, there's still a hell of a lot of people in this country that don't vote. And younger people are beginning to see the power of their voices through voting. And we should be working. If, If folks want to change this country They need to make sure that they first change the ability of people to to vote, make it easier to vote, not harder to vote. Get those numbers up of folks that are out there at the ballot box and demand from our candidates and our public servants that they're responsive to people. One of the biggest problems that we got in this country today, I believe, is gerrymandered House districts and gerrymandered state legislatures, because you can do the math and see that they are only answerable to a small population. Uh, and not the greater majority. We're seeing this play out right now in North Carolina. Governor Cooper is doing a hell of a job 
bringing home to people the fact that this North Carolina legislature is so gerrymandered. They represent only a small sliver of people, but they make the laws. And they, he is in begging and engaging these people to rise up and make their voices known. So I want to get people engaged at a civic level, at the local level, uh, because it will bubble up to Congress. And we, the other thing, the last thing I'll say about this is that, you know, every four years, we have the highest turnout in presidential elections. But where the rubber meets the road is in the governors, in the state legislatures. That's the local elections is where we really need to work on our turnout. That's where people can make a difference. Their governor makes a heck of a lot more difference to their state than the president of the United States, especially with the way the electoral college works. We need to get folks go back and, and learn a little civics about where they can really make a difference in their communities. And it is at that state and local level. I really appreciate that, not only because we just did a whole civics arc on the podcast for the spring, because we firmly believe in that, too. But I think it's a great reminder for people to hear, especially as we're starting to hear about the presidential election you know, next year, that that is, sure, a very important election. But there are so many local elections that affect you more directly in your communities. So don't just show up for that. Show up for that. Show up for everything else as well. Just show up. Keep yeah, showing show up, up. That all is, the time. Show up. Yes. A hundred percent. And, you know, I feel like we could talk to you both for hours, but, you know, in the interest of time, and also because we would love our listeners to read your book, Bending Towards Justice, and, you know, engage more fully with the work that you two have done. What else didn't we ask you that you'd like to share with our listeners? That's a loaded question, Bill. Oh, gosh, I think uh, the, the questions uh, have been pretty appropriate. I'm not sure about our answers, to, but uh, I think the answers are just not glamorous. Uh, they're pretty... Uh, they sound boring because uh, I think the answer to what you're saying, what we can do, I think is Spike Lee uh, had the title and came up with the phrase, do the right thing. And uh, I think that's the answer, but it doesn't, you know, ring bells or excite anybody. But I think if you really boil it down, that's the answer to about everything that uh, you've asked about how we can make things better, do the right thing and then do it at every level. Every day, uh, Doug was mentioning about uh, female women have only had a right to vote about 100 years. When I first started practicing law, women couldn't serve on juries in Alabama. My first probably eight or 10 trials, uh, maybe 20 trials, jury trials, women weren't eligible uh, to be jurors. So when you look at the great picture, we have certainly made progress uh, over every period, but uh, you always need to worry. I reckon that we've uh, are sliding backwards sometimes, and we need to do what we can to prevent that. And I think, I, for me, I look at where we are today, and I'm always reminded of a quote from Robert F. Kennedy, whose picture I have in my office that I keep, and he and it was something along the lines that you know. We all wish that we might live in a more tranquil world, uh, but we don't. But if our world is, is difficult and confusing, so too is it challenging and filled with opportunities. And that's the way I hope people will see this, that with the, everything that they maybe be cons are concerned about, 
is an opportunity. It's a challenge, but it's an also an opportunity to make things right, to make things better. I think one of the, the hallmarks, and it was it was why Doug, Bill talked about me sitting and the fact that I was his hero. Well, the fact of the matter is he's my hero because he saw that challenge. He saw that opportunity and he took it. That had an effect on that young kid sitting in the balcony. And if we look at the challenges and we look at the opportunities and we see the good things going on every day where people are taking advantages of that, then I think we can all have this incredible chorus of voices uh, voices that are, are rising up, that are pro-democracy, pro-America, but n- not full of hate and vitriol like we've got now. So seize those moments, seize those opportunities. Thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to chat with us and connect with us and inspire us. I really, really appreciate all the work you've done to shape the course of our country's history and that, that you both continue to do so. So thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you for having us. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>